Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm John Fusco, producer at No Film School. I am Emily Booter, managing editor of No Film School. I'm Charles Hayne, writer at No Film School. It is October 13th, 2016, and on this week's show, The New Red is Out, Vimeo ups their staff picks, how you can get that film look with a digital camera, and as always, news you can use about gear, upcoming deadlines, new film releases, and Ask No Film School. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly. We are live from downtown Brooklyn, as always. Liz isn't here this week um, because she's celebrating the high holidays. And I'm a terrible Jew, and I'm I'm not. And I'm not Jewish. Charles, how about you? I, I am not Jewish either. Great. So for all you Jewish people out there, uh, have a happy holiday and um, have a nice day off work. <laughs> <laughs> Jealous. Okay. Uh, so now we're just going to move right into the news this week. Um, and for that, I'm going to ask Emily, what's going on? Well, there are a couple things going on. Um, In an article that I recently wrote announcing a new Vimeo initiative, I said that the Vimeo staff picks have been the linchpin of the online short film community. And that's true, I think, because before that platform, short films really lived and died by the festival circuit. If you were lucky, your short might play at dozens of festivals, maybe, and could maybe hope to be seen by a couple thousand people. But Vimeo really brought short film curation online and to mass audiences. So with a staff pick, your short is guaranteed to be seen by tens of thousands of people. And since shorts rarely, if ever, get lucrative distribution deals, this avenue is much more appealing because it allows shorts to do exactly what they're supposed to do, which is be your calling card for a feature. So needless to say, I was super excited to hear that Vimeo is expanding upon its staff picks platform to create a year-long online film festival. The old staff picks will operate as usual, but a handful will be elevated to the best of month and best of year categories. And probably the most exciting development here is that rather than waiting for the curators to find your short online and contact you, as was the case with staff picks, you'll now be able to submit your own short for consideration. So the power is in your hands. The new initiative is called Staff Pick Premieres, and they're kicking it off with Danny DeVito's short film Curmudgeons, which originally screened at the Tribeca Film Festival, where I saw it and got to interview him about making it. I wanted to know a little bit more about what Staff Pick Premieres' goals were, so I called up veteran Vimeo employee Sam Morrill. Here's what he had to say. Over the years, curating for Vimeo, um, like one of the big stories that I've seen unfold has been uh, you know, the gradual... Um, acceptance and embrace of the internet for quality short films. So Staffic Premieres is kind of like, is, is like the next step in that, I would say. It's drawing more attention to the best short films that are premiering online today. Um, so, you know, we've been doing this for years already, bringing short films from the festival circuit on, onto, onto Vimeo and premiering them on Vimeo Staff Picks. But we're finally going to start doing editorial around these films, so writing reviews and doing interviews, uh, as well as just more robust marketing around these films. So, uh, you know, seeding them around the site, giving them more exposure just in general. So if you're anything like me, you're probably wondering what it is that Vimeo's curatorial team actually looks for in a short film. So I asked him for an example. One of the great films that we premiered recently was, or, or that we curated on Vimeo Staffics, was Thunder Road by Jim Cummings. Um, that was the film that won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance this year. And 
I think for anyone who watches that film, it's, you know, it's impossible not to relate um, to a story about a, uh, a cop who's, who's he's giving a eulogy at his mother's funeral, and it's this really kind of awkward but heartwarming mix of comedy and and drama, and you don't really know what direction it's it's going in. When you combine the fact that it's it's so unique and infinitely relatable, I think if every film that we premiered on Vimeo met those two standards, uh, we'd be really psyched. So is it someone's job to just be at Vimeo and be the person that makes the staff picks, or do they have other duties as well? Do you know? Yeah, they have an entire curatorial team that just pick staff picks and mm-hmm. like comes through that's an awesome job with this new staff pick premieres uh is it required to be an exclusive premiere like danny devito showed at tribeca but most festivals give you a benefit if you haven't shown anywhere else yet is that something vimeo will do as well i'm not totally sure i think that it's okay to have played on the festival circuit but it can't have premiered online before okay. so it has to be an exclusive online premiere Our coverage of New York Film Festival has continued this week as the festival continues. I believe it's in its last week or second to last week now. It ends on Saturday, I believe. It ends on Saturday. Um, And this week we've put out articles about uh, the movie Aquarius, which I saw last Friday, which has gotten some interesting response from a few of our international listeners. The movie has been sort of controversial as it's made its festival circuit around the world because uh, the crew and the cast have used this as a platform to engage in protest um, against the injustices of the Brazilian government. And the Brazilian government has sort of struck back by giving the uh, film a harsher rating than the director sees fit. And they actually chose a different film to represent them at the Oscars next year, even though this film has been really widely praised uh, throughout the world. Which film did they choose? Do you know? I forget the name of the film. I probably wouldn't be able to pronounce it either because Portuguese is very hard to speak. <laughs> but actually, if you go to the article um, that I wrote covering the Q&A after with the director and Sonia Braga, there are a few native Brazilian filmmakers who weighed in and gave some context to the article and talked about a few of the other great films that have come out of Brazil this year and sort of give some context for the controversy further than I was exposed to at the Q&A. So... Check it out. And um, the movie is actually playing in New York, too, uh, despite the fact that it just premiered at the festival. Did you see anything this week, Em? Yeah. Well, on a similar note regarding controversy, I saw a film, a Romanian film by the filmmaker Christian Mungju. He did Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days, one of the best movies I've ever seen, I believe. <laughs> and um, Beyond the Hills, which was absolutely beautiful, that came out a couple of years ago and played at the New York Film Festival. Um, And his newest is called Graduation. I interviewed him this morning, and I I would say he was the ideal interviewee because he, oftentimes you'll ask filmmakers questions like, why did you make this decision? Or can you walk me through your process? And they don't have specific ways of talking about them. They, they, They say things like, you know, it's hard to describe or like, I just operate based on a feeling. And um, with him, he has a process that's so clearly practiced and delineated and calculated that he was able to take me through, you know, basically 
zero to 100 of how he makes his films. He operates in realism. All of his films are incredibly realist and it comes off looking seamless, like almost documentary style, but it is so carefully choreographed. Every movement is pre-planned out. You know, every shot needs to be tracked in a certain way. So um, it was very interesting. This is really, so this will really be the last week of us being on this crazy festival sort bender. of insane two-month bender. Um, and we'll talk, I guess, maybe we can do more of a wrap-up next week on the show. But I just wanted to say, I think that one of the real values of festivals um, for anyone of our listeners who is fortunate enough to go to one um is that you just get the opportunity to see these films that you really wouldn't see anywhere else. Um, and I think that when I was first starting out as a sort of festival writer or as press, I would be really excited to see, and I would make it a goal to see the movies that are sort of big and very buzzy, but those movies are going to be coming out later in in theaters. And you'll get Oftentimes a chance to see Oftentimes even just like two weeks later yeah, after the festival. Totally. I mean, like TIFF, um, for example, I think they had the same day opening, like premiered at TIFF and then also simultaneously uh, or like a week later, The Magnificent Seven came out, for example. Um, so if you are going to a festival anytime soon, even though festival season is sort of wrapping up, keep that in mind. Go for the tiny gems. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and especially because even if they might be coming out to Netflix or Amazon eventually, watching a movie in a theater with an audience even if it's not totally packed at a festival, the smaller movies will still have people in the theater and it's, yeah, it's great. Yeah, totally. And a lot of these movies are just going straight from festivals to streaming services nowadays. That's just sort of how it works. So um, it gives you sort of a rare opportunity to do that. Speaking of streaming platforms, a really, really, really exciting one is coming out um, on October 19th. It's called Filmstruck. It's a streaming library that was developed and managed by Turner Classic Movies. Filmstruck is nothing less than a cinephile's wet dream, and I will tell you why. It features the largest selection of contemporary and classic art house, indie, foreign, and cult films with extensive bonus content, filmmaker interviews, and rare footage. That's basically a DVD library, the kind of stuff that we don't get on streaming platforms. And even better, Filmstruck will integrate with the entire Criterion Collection library into the service for subscribers. So like that cute video store clerk that seemed to know everything about German expressionism, there will be 70 fully curated programming themes to help you navigate those infinite stacks of proverbial DVDs. The regular subscription is $7 a month, but it jumps to $11 a month with the Criterion integration. So is it every Criterion movie that's on Filmstruck? Like yeah. the entire and like even as uh, they keep releasing new ones, will they be adding yeah. more to it? That's cool. I mean, because I know that Hulu has a ton of Criterion movies. They've stolen. They've stole. So yeah. they're not Criterion's be... moved off Hulu, right? Yeah. Really? I was looking for some uh, actually the other night, and I could only find a few. Huh. That must be a recent thing, because I yeah I shit because like last week where I wrote this article about Martin Scorsese's favorite foreign films or the foreign films that he recommends all students watch. And I linked a ton of them to Hulu. So that <laughs> article may already be irrelevant, unfortunately, but maybe I'll go in and replace them with Filmstruck like in, instead now. Yeah. I think this is cool because 
it's it's a good alternative to like what we lost moving from DVDs to streaming libraries. I, it fills in the gaps, like all of those older films that you wouldn't know where to find if you didn't have a Netflix DVD subscription and, you know, the behind the scenes material, the bonus content, all of that. Charles, do you have any gear news for us? There's a couple big pieces of gear news this week. Uh, the first one is that the uh, red 8K helium sensor cameras are shipping. So this is kind of cool news because Red hasn't always been great with hitting their shipping date. And not only are they shipping camera bodies three months after announcing and releasing the first Helium footage, they didn't even set out like, we're definitely going to ship this by October and then make it. They did the adult thing of being like, here's our new sensor and we will tell you when it's ready to ship. They've promised a lot of things in the past and not made their dates. And I think this is a really nice transition of them starting to act more like a... Man. Perf- yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Red's like, we'll call you when we call you. <laughs> and then they call and they actually have a camera available, which is really nice of them. Honestly, all the helium footage we saw over the summer is very exciting. It's really nice that the camera bodies are not neon green like the Michael Bay special camera body was. And um, I think with 8K, we're really getting to that point where like post cropping is actually a realistic option. My only quibble at this point is they still refer to using the full sensor as full frame, which I think is very confusing because there's obviously full frame cameras like the 5D and uh, they should really just call it full sensor. Uh, It's a little it's like a tiny little tweak in otherwise a good bit of good news from Red. And uh, it looks like if you get the weapon helium you'll be able to upgrade that later to the helium vv for vista vision which will give you a full frame actually slightly bigger than full frame sensor and uh that camera is being used right now to shoot guardians of the galaxy 2 Ooh. Ooh. up next in gear news the sony upgraded the a6000 line of 4k cameras to the a6500 the a6300 which is the last iteration hasn't really taken off in narrative you're not seeing a lot of like festival movies in it but you're seeing a lot of popularity with that camera in the instagram and the blogger world you're seeing a lot of activity with that camera and it's a great camera that offers interchangeable lenses 4k good image quality for like 1400 bucks Interestingly, the A6500 is one of those nice jumps where they focused on things that actually matter. So, like, one of the big things is they've focused on improving the recording so that it has less rolling shutter artifacts. So, still just does 4K. They haven't done, like, a big marketing spec bump to 6K, even though the sensor is almost 6K. But rolling shutter is one of those things that is actually kind of frustrating in a camera, and it doesn't make for a great ad. But uh, I'm glad that they focused on that, and I think this is a good improvement. Uh, the last bit of gear news this week is we're really starting to see, uh, have we called this segment something like micro stabilizers or mini stabilizers? We're starting to see a lot of activity in DJI, Osmo, accessories, and ripoffs. And uh, that's like an interesting place to be. I mean, we all remember when the first DJI Ronin came out four years ago and like it was the video everybody watched that day and it was like, oh my God, you can stabilize a camera so well. Um, for such a small amount of money. And the Osmo is like their handheld version of it. It's taking drone technology and it's putting it in your hand. A couple of cool pieces of kit came out this week. Um, first off, Camera R came out with an extension cable. So you can mount the DJI Osmo outside your car and sit safely in the car and operate it. 
which is great. You're basically getting like a remote camera. Now, you could always do this with your iOS app, but I've never found operating over an app to be as good as like having a full-on toggle handle. So that's a great accessory. And then the other thing is we're starting to see the competitors roll in. Snopa, which is a company that's three months old, is now marketing the Snopa Go, which is basically a DJI Osmo that'll work with GoPros Hero 3, 4, or 5, unlike the GoPro, which only works with the five. When we posted this article on Facebook, a Swedish, one of our Swedish followers actually said that Snopa means to cut off a penis in Swedish. What? They have a specific <laughs> word just for penis clipping? Yes. So, good to know. Yeah. If anyone knows if that's true, I would really love to know the, like... Oxford English Dictionary history of why they have a word just for like there's no word for just cutting your finger off. Well, <laughs> we we do have bris, which is but that's the tip, right? Shalom. Just yeah, the just tip. the tip. <laughs> Way to go, Swedes! <laughs> Way to have a lot of words for cutting off cocks. Um, yeah, so. The Snopa team, who obviously doesn't do very good na- brand name research before launching, hopefully have, d- have put all that research energy they should have investigated into the name, into the camera unit. They have a $300 comp- competitor for the uh, DJI Osmo or the GoPro Karma handle. And what's interesting about it is it comes with a $30 accessory that allows you complete wireless handle control. So you don't even need a cable attachment. And I think we're going to start to see a lot of really fascinating camera moves where one person's moving it through space while the other person's operating the pan, tilt, zoom. There's going to be a lot of fascinating stuff you can do there. The Snopa Go also has a built-in LED, which seems a little cheesy, but also seems kind of great if it works. So uh, I'm, I'm excited to get my hands on one and test it. Moving on to some grant deadlines this week, the Made in New York Writers Room Fellowship has a deadline of October 20th. This is specifically designed for screenwriters living in New York City with a teleplay for a comedy or drama episodic series. The fellowship program aims to identify emerging writers whose work offers new and diverse points of view. Made in NY says, We know that when writers' room reflect the diversity of New York City, audiences are treated to stories that are more exciting, creative, and reflective of their experiences. Eligible writers must meet all application criteria and guidelines, including a nomination for submission from a recommending organization or membership in the Writers Guild of America. The list of those associations are in a link in the article accompanying this podcast. It also requires a completed application form and properly formatted comedy or drama pilot. Applicants will be evaluated on the overall strength of all application materials, including personal essay, script, and interviews with program partners and mentors. And WGAE members who write for television will review all scripts through a blind submission process. Each script is then scored and provided with written feedback. There are prizes that go along with this fellowship. Five finalists with the highest scoring comedy scripts will be nominated to the Screenwriters Colony Episodic Comedy in partnership with the Nantucket Film Festival. Two finalists will win the second place prize, where their comedy and drama scripts will be performed at a professionally cast and directed live reading at Lincoln Center. And for third place, up to 12 applicants are selected to participate in the six-month fellowship program. I assume that the first and second prize winners will be able to participate in that as well. Fellows will receive a stipend to participate in educational and professional development programs offered by the WGAE, be matched with a showrunner based on their career interests, and produce a table read of their script by union actors. 
There's no cost to apply for the fellowship, which is great, and writers may register their pilot scripts free of charge as part of the application process. So the fellowship is six months, as I said, and that stipend, which will be compensated for all time spent working on fellowship activities, is for $15 an hour or up to $15,600. That's not bad. That's a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Coming up on October 31st, or otherwise known as Halloween. Halloween! Very spooky. Is the Frameline Completion Fund for films that reflect the complexity of the LGBTQ community, and it offers up to $5,000 for finishing funds. Frameline says this program, quote, seeks to provide a much-needed source of contributions to artists who often struggle to secure funding to complete their works. And now moving on to festival deadlines. The Portland International Film Festival has a deadline of October 17th. The key word here being international. Even though it takes place in Portland, they tend to focus primarily on work from outside the United States, but American features, documentaries, and shorts are also included. It's a non-competitive festival that takes place February 9th to the 26th in Portland, Oregon. It's been running for 40 years, and it was established in 1977, drawing audiences of over 40,000 annually. It's the largest film event in Oregon, premiering more than 140 international shorts and feature films. Audiences can expect parties, visiting artists, panels, and tons and tons of great movies. So if you are one of our international listeners, go ahead and submit your short to the Portland International Film Festival. The BFI Future Film Fest has a deadline on October 20th. If you're not familiar with BFI, it's the prestigious British Film Institute. The festival takes place February 15th through the 19th in London, England. It's a festival specifically designed for young people ages 16 to 25. So if you're over 25, you can stop listening now. It's the 10th annual edition of this festival. And the cool thing, the really cool thing is that entrants can submit as many films as they like entirely for free. Um, And this is solely for short films. But as I said earlier, the biggest rule is that the director, producer, and the majority of the production crew should be aged 25 or under at the time the film was made. But hey, if you have actors that are over 25, that's fine. And I don't know if this is a coincidence or not, but they award up to 25,000 pounds in cash prizes. And just a few reminders, Tribeca Film Festival's early deadline is October 19th, and the San Francisco Independent Film Festival's regular deadline is coming up on October 14th. We already talked those about those on previous shows, but I just wanted to remind you guys that those deadlines are looming around the corner. This week's episode of Indie Film Weekly is brought to you by our friends at Vimeo, the world's best filmmakers called Vimeo Home. We all know about Vimeo. But do you know about Vimeo Pro? When you join Vimeo Pro, you can upload up to 20 gigabytes of video each week and showcase your video in the highest quality possible with unlimited bandwidth in Vimeo's ad-free 4K player. Vimeo can provide you with a platform to really jumpstart your career as a filmmaker. And if you have a Vimeo Pro account, all those prospective clients are going to look at it and they're going to be like, this filmmaker is a real pro. Even better than that, you'll join a supportive community of passionate filmmakers and video professionals that you can only find on Vimeo. Or no film school, of course. Not to mention, that support network can give you feedback on your latest project, provide you with an easy way to send off work to collaborators, 
and act as a resume to show off all the work you've previously done. So if you're ready to stop playing around with the YouTubes and get serious, you can give Vimeo Pro a try and save 15% when you go to vimeo.com slash professionals. Get pro and enter the code NFS at checkout. Limit one discount per person, offer valid for first year of membership, renews at regular price. Vimeo Pro, powerful tools for professional filmmakers. This week for our Ask No Film School segment, we're actually going to answer two questions because they are both equally important and we just could not choose. <laughs> they were both just so good and so entertaining that we thought, hey. Why not do them both? Why not? So Arthur Brell asks, I need your help. I'm having problems with the so-called gamma shift issue, exporting footage from either Premiere or Resolve. It always comes out too bright and washed out a little. Is there any chance you could address this issue? I can't do it, but Charles can. Charles. How do you do it? Oh, gamma shift. Yeah. Oh, if you had asked me like in 2004, if I was still going to be dealing with gamma shift in 2016, I'd be like, no way. In the future, the flying cars will fix gamma shift. But here we are. Okay. So there's a few things to unpack here. Gamma shift is a term gets, that gets thrown around a lot. And it's not always gamma shift that's the problem. But it sounds to me like the situation you're having is you're working in Resolve and Premiere and everything looks really great on your computer monitor, and then you export it and it doesn't. And one of the common problems that causes that is gamma shift. All video is encoded, encoded with something called gamma, which uh, refers to the way in which like the brightness of a scene gets written in the brightness of your file. And there are a bunch of different gammas that are used for different historical reasons. And if you are shifting things from one gamma recording mode to another gamma recording mode, things can look off. So it's entirely possible that you're having a gamma shift issue. And gamma shift issues were huge in the late 90s, early 2000s, because Final Cut Pro applied an artificial gamma shift to DV footage in order to try and make it look like it would look on television. And that messed everything up, especially if you shot anything other than DV and then like Final Cut applied an artificial gamma shift to it that was fake. However, until I know exactly where things are looking bright and washed out, I can't give you the definite answer. Because if it's looking that way in like QuickTime Player or VLC or QuickTime Player 7 Pro, which is still my favorite video player, that's like one set of problems. But then the other set of problems comes in if it's looking like that on YouTube or Vimeo. What the answer used to be is the only way to really know what your video is is to like get an SDI adapter card and look at it on a broadcast monitor, and that's how you know. But like, that's not how people watch TV anymore. Like, I watch most of what I watch on Netflix or Hulu or Vimeo. Like, that's where I, I see everything. And so, like, it actually matters what it looks like there. Because every single software system deals with video footage differently, and every single online outlet deals with video differently. What I usually say is let's look at where you want it to end up and then work backwards from there. Because if you're having if you have to burn a DVD, which believe it or not some festivals still want you to do and it's looking weird there, that's a different issue than if it's looking weird on Vimeo. If it's looking weird on Vimeo, uh, my first guess is I would like go all the way back to the start of your pipeline and try and figure out what you shot and what footage you're putting into Premiere or Resolve. Because like if it's VFX shots that are all mapped to 0 to 1024 and then it's going into Resolve, but Resolve thinks they're 64 to 940, that's one way that when they get rendered out 64 to 940, they might look too bright. Um, the other question I have for you is, are you working on PC or Mac? 
So um, you should email us and answer a couple questions like what, uh, where the footage came from and are you on PC or Mac? And I will happily help you um, troubleshoot the situation. What's most likely going to be the answer is an artificial gamma applied to your footage for Vimeo. Like, for instance, in Apple Compressor, you can apply a gamma shift. And for everything I put on Vimeo, I apply a 0.97 gamma shift because I think it looks better on Vimeo that way. And uh, so you'll have to do your own testing with your own workflow to figure out what looks best. Um, For the record, this is a problem every filmmaker deals with. And every monitor looks different than every other monitor. Apple changes like monitor vendors and the color temperature shifts. Um, this is the problem that drove George Lucas so crazy he invented THX because Star Wars was shown in all these theaters and he'd go to different theaters and the bulb brightness would be different and the prints would be different ages and it drove him crazy. So he invented THX to make all the theaters look the same. But outside of like motion picture theatrical projection where like brightness and volume is set, the rest of us just have to constantly be navigating this all the time. And uh, I hope that was some helpful info. And then if you email us with some more specifics, we'll be able to dial in exactly what's going on and help you figure it out. That was a great answer, Charles. Thank you. Our second question comes from LMSS, who asks how to get that film look on a digital camera. Charles, can you answer this one too? I'll try. Um, All right, so LMSS, that's a great question. It's something everybody thinks about all the time. Uh, The film look is still like something a lot of people talk about. Um, You said a lot in your question, and I wanted to like start with, you actually started by saying like, I tend to shoot projects with like the Alexa and Cook S4s, which like I think everyone can agree is the most film looking combination of digital equipment out there. So If the Alexa and the S4 isn't quite getting filmy enough for you and you want something better, I think it'll help to understand, like, what aspect of the film look do you feel like is missing from the Alexa? Because, for instance, the Alexa has some noise or grain texture built in, which masks some of, like, that clean digital look or, like, the digital artifacting that you might see in, like, a RED camera. Right. So when you look at like a super close up on a Alexa image, there'll be a little bit of like texture or grain. And there's almost always texture or grain in film, even when you're shooting 35 anamorphic uh, at like what was the 5205 or the 5201, like really slow 50D daylight stocks. There was still noise in there. There was still grain because film is made up of grain particles. And the Alexa recreates some of that because it helps hide some of the artifacting of digital. It's also something we've all grown used to. And uh, it's just nice. It's pleasant. It can look quite flattering. So if you're frustrated that the Alexa, which has very little grain, doesn't quite have enough, you might want to explore some after like post-processing technology, Koji Color or Gorilla Grain. There's a lot of great plugins out there that replicate film and do it in post. Remember, not only did film have grain, but we also spent a lot of time manipulating film images in post. So there's nothing wrong with having a digital camera that gives you a good starting point and then you manipulate it later. In film, we had to download it from the camera and take it to the lab. And then in the lab, we could leave it in the bath longer, manipulate the chemicals. And then when we printed it, we manipulated it. So manipulating an image is not breaking any rules. It's not less pure. And if the thing you're missing is that grainy texture or the color 
science of film, then a lot of people are doing a lot of good work in emulating, like even down to specific film stocks and specific periods in history and processing that can give you a lot of really good results. So I would recommend you taking a look at those. And then the last thing I'll say is you asked, is it better to like buy a camera or buy a lens? And first off, lenses were going to be the next thing I talked about anyway, because lenses have so much to do with the personality of the image. Um, you should check out that vintage cinema lens test that the share grades guys did and we covered a week ago. It's really fascinating to see how dramatically different different lenses recreate the image. And the Cook S4s are beautiful, but they're very modern. They're very clean. But if possible, you do want to get that with the lens, not with post-processing because you know the lens is bending the actual light from the scene. So I really think testing some different lenses, if you're already happy with the Alexa, test some different lenses and then maybe consider buying some lenses. Because here's the thing, 20-year-old cinema lenses regularly get rented, regularly get used, still make monies for their owner. You know, the Master Primes are, man, 15 years old at this point, and they're still the newest lenses out there and beautiful and cost $26,000 each to buy. Um, but a 20-year-old digital camera is like a doorstop. If you're thinking about, like, I really want to commit to this film look, keep running an Alexa because they'll keep making those better and go out and buy yourself a, a beautiful vintage set of Kawas or a vintage set of Bosch and Lyons or a vintage set of the original Speed Pancro Series 2s and, um, and then rent the camera. Um, if you do decide to buy a camera, be sure you have a plan where you're only expecting a couple of years to pay that camera back because uh, cameras usually run the run their monetizable life out pretty quickly these days. Okay. Boom. <laughs> That's how you do it. Now, moving on to some movies that are opening this week. One of the movies that premiered at TIFF that has one of those not-so-far-away release dates that we were talking about earlier in the episode is Christopher Getz's new Netflix movie, Mascots. I'm really excited to see this movie. It was one of the films I was most excited to see at TIFF. I managed to score a ticket to the premiere there, but unfortunately I had to go to a conflicting screening because I actually got an interview for the movie that I was going to go to and I couldn't get an interview for mascots because those guys are legends. If you haven't seen any of Christopher Guest's movies, I, I highly doubt that's the case. Uh, he's made This is Spinal Tap, Best in Show, and Waiting for Guffman, among many others. In this film, he actually reprises the role of Corky St. Clair from Waiting for Guffman, and it features all the regular cast members, including Parker Posey, Jane Lynch, Fred Willard, Harry Shearer, and Jennifer Coolidge. It's got this trademark mockumentary style, which he always uses. It's largely improvised, and this time, it always seems like it, his movies center around competitions or awards in some way as well. Uh, this time, he examines the world of competitive mascotting. Coming to Amazon Prime Instant is Louder Than Bombs on October 17th, directed by one of my favorite Norwegian directors, Joachim Trier, and starring everyone's favorite French woman, Isabel Huppert, and everyone's favorite American man, Jesse Eisenberg. Is that true? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to be fair. Okay. <laughs> um, it's about a father and his two sons confronting the loss of their mother and it's told in a fractured elliptical style where memories are patched together and past and present fuses um, and it's quite incredible I would see it if I were you and one quick mention the Alchemist 
Cookbook came out to streaming platforms last week, including Amazon and BitTorrent Now. Our Oakley Anderson Moore had an interview with director Joel Petrikis and Adam J. Minnick, who is the director of photography. The movie is a horror film about a young hermit suffering from delusions of fortune who hides out in the forest hoping to crack an ancient mystery but pays a price for his mania. This movie sounds spooky and mysterious. Would you agree with that statement? I would say mostly mysterious and not so spooky. Well, you know, it's just going to have to be your job to find out, listeners. So check out the article on No Film School and check out the movie on BitTorrent or Amazon. Coming out theatrically on Friday, we had a podcast about this film earlier this week on Monday. So if you haven't had a chance to check that interview out, you should do it because it's good. Christine is Antonio Campos's first movie outside of the Borderline Film Collective. If you're not familiar with Borderline, they have done Martha Marcy May Marlene, uh, Simon Killer, and James White. And what's really cool about them is that they all take turns as writer, producer, or director to each other's films. Campos directed this film, and the screenplay was written by a man named Craig Svilovich, who is also a producer. This was his first screenplay. And the movie's really great. Um, I, as I said earlier, I got a chance to interview Antonio and Craig uh, at Toronto, and they were two of the most down-to-earth and really knowledgeable about film, um, especially from sort of a, a, an emerging filmmaker's standpoint. They had some great advice. So again, listen to that podcast. The movie is about uh, Christine Chubbick, who was a news reporter whose mental illness led her to commit suicide on air. Sorry if that's a spoiler, but it shouldn't be because the whole movie sort of deals with the tension and the events that sort of set this mania into motion. And it's just really a unique film. It's got everything. Check it out in theaters. It's coming to a limited release this Friday, and I'm sure it'll expand. A film that opened last week that you all should definitely see is Terrence Malick's new Voyage of Time. It comes in two versions, a 45-minute IMAX version with minimal narration from divorcee Brad Pitt and a 90-minute director's cut with the quintessential Malick voiceover, which, if you all know what I mean, it's like, Mother, I strive for you. Spooky. <laughs> Very spooky. I saw the director's cut in Toronto and was able to speak to longtime Malik producers Sarah Green and Nicholas Gonda, along with their new hire, Planet Earth veteran Sophocles Tatsoulis. The film boasts awe-inspiring visual effects and nature footage, and it was 12 years in the making. It spans the history of the universe, from the Big Bang to the volcanoes of the primordial Earth, to the first protozoans, and ending, of course, with Homo sapiens. Here are Green, Gonda, and Tatsoulis discussing the film's original conceit. Gosh, when we met Terry, I mean, we met him for the New World, okay. Nick and I, and it's one of the first things we talked about, even before he, even before he gave the script for the New World, he was talking about this, this sort of, you know, nature-driven, not dialogue-driven film about these big ideas, and it's something he had actually shot footage on since, you know, since, since he started making movies. He started just talking about it in, in ways that were very engaging, like, what if we, could you imagine, is it possible, you know? And then the more we talked, the more excited we got. Every frame of this film is, in, is, is you know, informed by absolute research, meticulous research, and 
the most up-to-date, either proven information or theories that we have. Again, it was such always such an interesting conversation. We talked about it all the time. And we would be, you know, you know, and then there would be a new, you know, scientific discovery that we'd get talking about and think about whether to incorporate it and how. And so um, there were there were periods of time that we were very focused on it, like you know when we'd have the first the first grant that we received, you know, really got us going. We shot a lot of natural history with that, but the visual effect work took a lot of time and planning and thought. And so that we waited until we were really ready and we knew exactly what we needed for that. And that was like a very concentrated period of time. Besides the monumental VFX work, the nature footage was also a really big challenge. You have to be prepared to fail. You send out crews there and they always come back with something. You should be worried. You should be worried because you're after the easy stuff. Hmm. Only when they come back and they tell you, look, we spent two months and we didn't get you know, what we wanted. Then you know, you're know you after something because then you do the, the difficult stuff. Despite the film's ambitious scope, the producers maintained that working with Terry's vision was not actually too difficult a feat. Well, I think a great quality about Terry as, as a phenomenal artist is also that he is very aware of practicalities. So when we talk to him about parameters, he then will work within those parameters, whether that relates to schedule, budget, if it ultimately relates to technical capability of visual effects tools. He pushes the boundaries of what's possible, but then he works within the confines of what's possible. So it makes our job a lot easier where we're not having to pull him back from being irresponsible. We're fortunately dealing with somebody where responsibility is very germane. Of course, then there's Malik's infamous editorial process, which can only be described as freewheeling. And also for me, as the newest member, you know, to the Malik family, in a way, what was very surprising for me when I first went into the edit in Austin, how many young people were there. You know, like, if you're over 25, he will kick you out of the edit room, you know. <laughs> He's inspired by, by young people a lot, and there's a lot of interaction, and, I, and that, that's one of the, you know, incredible qualities of Terry, that... He will listen to, you know, he has his vision, but he's open to suggestions and everything. And that's very fascinating to see that. That guy, the the recent hire who filmed Planet Earth before, that guy's lived a pretty cool life. (laughs) I would say so. Yeah, I am... Well, (laughs) that about wraps it up. You can read about all of the stories we mentioned this week on the podcast at the accompanying article on No Film School. If you like the podcast, rate us on iTunes, and if you haven't subscribed yet, then you should subscribe at the same time you're rating us. I'm John Fusco. Is that how we do this? Who knows? I guess so. We'll do it like that. I'm John Fusco. You can follow me at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. And uh, you can follow Emily. Jim, 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 Jim. You missed your chance. And you can follow Emily at... E.L. Booter. And Charles... I'm at Charles Hain, and Hain is spelled just like Tim Kane, but with an H. And you can follow all of us at No Film School. Thanks for listening. Yeah.